Apostle Paul from the letter to the 1st Corinthians chapter 15 verses 19 to 26. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, to, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this, for this day, Lord. We thank you, Father, for raising Christ out of the grave. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are alive. And so, Lord, we pray as we continue to celebrate today, Lord, that our celebration and our worship would be honoring to you. And so, Lord, we pray all of these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, the Apostle John, uh, he begins his first epistle with these words. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands. I think this, this text, this verse, is an appropriate application, really, for all of what we're looking at today in this passage from the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians. Because for Christians, today is absolutely a celebration. And this almost seems, I think, to be even more true for, for Christian traditions who intentionally follow the seasons of the Christian year. As a kid, I, I did not, so, you know, it's one of those things where, where Easter was a celebration, but the fact that we follow with Christ from birth to, to resurrection, this day seems almost like more of a celebration because now the fast of Lent is over and the Redeemer has been raised from the dead and is alive forevermore. Amen. But because today is a celebration, I thought for our sermon time today, we would just celebrate and we would celebrate by considering together some of these amazing truths of the resurrection of Christ that Paul presents to the Corinthians in this text for today. And so let's celebrate by considering really how the resurrection of Christ has not only immediate effects upon our lives, but lasting effects upon our lives. You see, for unbelievers, I think the one thing that is incomprehensible about faith in Jesus is the resurrection. See, the world can accept, and we have seen it accept, a historical Jesus. But the world cannot accept a resurrected Christ. Because if Christ has been raised from the dead, 
And this is what I think Paul is getting at in this entire chapter. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then his claims of himself were not made in vain. But rather, as Paul starts the book of Romans, the resurrection proves the truth of Jesus' claims. And even if Christians, even though Christians, we need to be regularly reminded of these effects of the resurrection. And this is really where Paul's concern in this chapter comes from. Because many in Corinth are denying that there even is an actual resurrection of the dead. Not only the unbelievers around them in the city of Corinth, but people within the church who have proclaimed faith in Christ, who have heard the gospel from the apostles. These Christians are denying that there is a resurrection. And so Paul's point in this chapter could not be more plain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, if Jesus is still dead and rotting in a tomb, then our faith is in vain. Our hope is in vain, and we are all still dead in our sins. And if that isn't chilling enough, we come to this first verse of our text that's in the bulletins. And he goes on and he says this, If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So consider what what Paul is saying with these words here about the lives really of each and every single believer from the first century until now. If Christ is still dead, if he is still in the grave, Paul tells us that all who believe in Christ, if he is still dead, are are pitiful people. They are absolutely pitiful people. And the word he uses here can be defined, especially from the Greek, because we know, right, Greek has multiple meanings. But this word here could be defined as something as deserving sympathy due to a pathetic condition. Another way of understanding it, I think, is that this could be a person who is just completely inconsolable because their situation is absolutely miserable. There's nothing that can be done for them. They are absolutely pitiable. Because for a Christian to have had hope in the resurrection, where there is no resurrection, has not only believed in vain, but they died in vain. Theirs becomes the most meaningless and useless and worthless of deaths because their lives were based on a lie and their lives meant nothing. They proclaimed a God who means nothing if he is still dead. And you get the point, right? You get the point of what he's trying to drive home here in this verse through everything he's already said through this chapter. And you see the context in which Paul is framing his argument for the reality of the resurrection of Christ. But the sad truth is, if we're being honest, people even today who call themselves Christians don't really see the reality of the flesh and blood resurrection of Christ as a necessary factor to their regular everyday lives. What passes for Christianity today in some circles is really nothing more than a modern version of Gnosticism. Because to them, the spiritual life is all that matters. Now, the spiritual life does matter, right? The spiritual life of the Christian absolutely matters. This is why we fast through Lent. This is why we pray, while we repent, while we, frankly, we come and we take Eucharist and we worship the way we do. But Christ was sent to redeem the entire person, not just the spirit. The flesh matters. And so what we do with our bodies absolutely matters. Paul stresses this point in Romans. He says in chapter 12, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The body matters. It matters because we present our whole selves as a spiritual act of worship to God. And so Paul is reminding the Corinthians, and this is what we need to be reminded on this Sunday of all Sundays, that without the resurrection of Christ, we have absolutely no hope. There is no Christianity without the resurrection of Christ. There's no church without the resurrection of Christ. 
There's no forgiveness. What, what's the point is of the forgiveness of sins if we remain dead or if Christ remains dead? What use is there of repentance and fasting through Lent if we have no hope beyond this life only? This is a chilling reality. But verse 20, and Paul uses the word but so well in all of his letters, I think. But in this case, it, it just hammers home so well. Today is Resurrection Sunday. It's the day where we loudly and rightly proclaim that Christ is risen. And in verse 19, if verse 19 serves as a shocking truth, if we deny the resurrection, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam we all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And what Paul puts in these few verses really is one very important eternal truth that if we miss it, we really miss the entire hope of faith in Christ. We miss the entire hope of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was and is a physical and a bodily resurrection. And this means that if Jesus was raised bodily, then the Christian will also have a physical and bodily resurrection. And here's really why we celebrate Easter. For all the reasons we celebrate it, it's because Jesus has been raised, and so the Christian will be raised. And Paul uses... I think in this passage, two, in these few verses we just read, these two, he uses two pictures to illustrate this reality. And he weaves them together so beautifully in these three or four verses. And they're, they're the illustration, he uses the illustration of first fruits, but also the illustration of headship. And so looking at the illustration of first fruits in verses 20 and 23, to understand this, we really need to get a little bit of Pauline context as well as Jewish context. All right, so... So we know that there are multiple Jewish feasts throughout the year, but around this time of year, there are three feasts that follow in close succession. There's the Feast of Passover. There is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then immediately following that one is the Feast of Firstfruits. And so because these three feasts follow so closely together, it was a commonly held tradition in the early church that Jesus was raised on the first day of Firstfruits. And the day that the sheaf offering was made, which is the day that kicked off the Feast of first fruits. In this particular feast, what the priest would do is he would go into the temple and he would wave a sheaf, a sheaf of barley before the Lord as a praise offering. And this is important for us because the first fruits of the season are the first of the season's produce, meaning there is a, an anticipation of a greater harvest to come later. And so the first fruits simply signify the beginning of the harvest season. And this, this offering of first fruits, what it does is it intentionally looks forward then with joyful expectation. It looks forward to expectation that Yahweh will provide a full and an abundant harvest. In fact, what this, this feast of first fruit even did is that it dedicated the first fruit offering as a guarantee or as a seal that God would provide a greater harvest in the future. So with that context, look at verses 20 and 23. Look at what, what Paul says. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, because Paul was a Pharisee, 
Paul knew the feasts as much as he knew the Word of God, right? He knew the Old Testament pretty well. And so now with the indwelling Holy Spirit and now also having the better and fuller revelation of of Jesus as the Christ, Paul regards all of the Old Testament offerings and sacrifices as completely fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus. And so in Christ, then, the first fruits obtain their full and their proper meaning. Christ is the first fruit offering to God. He is the first in order, but the full harvest of God is still to come. Christ Jesus is but the first of those who have died to have been raised. And he was raised bodily first, and then at his coming, his second advent, all of those who belong to him will also be raised bodily. And Paul's meaning here, I think, is very plain. Because, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, those who have died believing in him and hoping in him and hoping in his resurrection, they have not died in vain. You will not die in vain. And this is a thing I think we have to constantly remind ourselves. Because Christ, as the first fruits, we will also be raised just as he was raised as part of the complete harvest to bring honor and glory to God. But then he, he builds on this with the this, this second illustration he brings out in these few verses here. And this is this illustration of headship. So he tells us we either have Adam as our head or we have Christ as our head. Look at what he says in verses 21 and 22. He goes on and he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, I know that there are multiple books because I've had to read a few of them and multiple papers because I've had to read a few of them, as well as, I would imagine, heated discussions in a lot of theology departments over this topic of headship. So I'm not going to give a full treatise because, frankly, today is about worshiping Christ and not arguing a theological point. But that being said, I think it does add to our celebration. And so I think as we look at it, it will help our proclamation of the resurrection of Christ. So I do want to take a moment and look at it because Paul draws it out here. And we can see really a basic definition of this idea of headship and how Paul uses two key identifiers in verses 21 and 22. He tells us we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. Now let's work through that, through this whole idea of headship with Christ being the first fruits. Look again, read these, read these again. For as by a man came death, by, also, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And Paul's language and choice of words here I think are very important. Because remember... These identifiers, we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. And what Paul is clarifying for us is that Adam represents all of humanity. Adam represents us as our head. All of humanity are born in Adam. We are born in Adam and we die in Adam. And Paul tells us that every man, every woman, every child, redeemed or lost, all of us do die. Because Adam is our head. The author of Hebrews tells us it is appointed for man to die once. And then after that comes the judgment, which tells us something that we all have to be reminded of, I think, regularly. The mortality rate for humanity is 100%. Taking Elijah and Enoch out of the equation for a brief moment, right? The mortality rate for humanity is 100% because 100% of us are all in Adam. But those in Christ are made alive. 
And this is why grasping the reality and the necessity of the resurrection is so important for us. Because just right before this text, it's in our bulletins. In verse 17, Paul reminds the Corinthians that, again, if Christ had not been raised, then we are all still in our sins. And Jesus' work of dealing with sin goes hand in hand with his resurrection. Christ may have atoned for our sins on the cross, but we are not justified in Christ if Christ is still dead. Paul tells us this in Romans 4. He says, Christ was delivered up for our sins, but he was raised for our justification. So in Adam, all of humanity physically dies, but in Christ, the representative headship of Adam is broken. We may all still physically die, but with Christ as now the head of his people, those who have believed in him, those are made physically and spiritually alive through his resurrection. To put it simply, his resurrection becomes the guarantee of our resurrection. Ambrose wrote this. He said, unquestionably, the first fruits are of the same species and nature of the rest of the fruit. So, as the first fruits of death were in Adam, so also the first fruits of the resurrection are in Christ. To put it even more simply, what is true of Christ Jesus is true of his people who are in him and who have him as their head. John writes this in in 1 John 3. He says, we know that we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. But each in his own order, Paul tells us here. Christ is the first fruits of the harvest presented to God. And then at his second advent, those who are in Christ Jesus will be like him. We will be physically raised because we shall see him as he is. We will be flesh and blood glorified just like Christ. But then he doesn't stop there. If this wasn't enough, right? If it wasn't enough and wanted to just stop and come forward and take Eucharist, we could. But Paul goes on and he just keeps hammering home this point of why the resurrection is so necessary for us to understand. So keeping with these two illustrations in mind, headship and first fruits, Paul reminds us that even with that, the resurrection of Christ, it ushers in the end. He tells us this in these last three verses. He says again, but each in his own order, right? Christ, the first fruits, then those, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what he does is in verse 23, he, he, he doesn't stop, right? That's not where he ends the chapter. He's not where he ends the argument. He uses it like a like a diving board to jump even deeper into this pool. And he he tells us that at the coming of Christ, those who are in Christ, we are physically raised, and then comes the end. But again, notice Paul's language. Notice what he does here. The whole purpose of this chapter is to stress the reality of the resurrection, both of Christ, but also those who are in Christ. The Corinthians are, are worrying, as do the Thessalonians. They worry that, well, my loved one has died believing in Christ, but... They're dead now, so what is their future hope? And this is what Paul is driving at in this chapter. And so what he does then is after verse 23, those who belong to Christ being raised at his coming, he uses this interesting combination of then and when in verse 24 to stress the reality of the resurrection of Christ even further. He says those who are in Christ will be raised at his second coming, but then the end will come. And this, this is the time that we as Christians, we, we are constantly, we're still waiting on it. We've been waiting on it for 2,000 years. And this is why we constantly pray, come Lord Jesus. 
This is why we celebrate Advent to Pentecost, right? To remind ourselves that Christ will indeed return. He will not forsake his people. And though we have the first fruits of Christ, we are still waiting on the final harvest. And this waiting is why it can be so frustrating for us, because humanity, we're, we're, we're impatient people. And, it, and we're impatient and we're frustrated because we don't know the time. And so what Paul does in this passage is he clarifies here. He says, then the end will come when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And he indicates this future reality. And I think this is so helpful for those of us that either know or have ever been obsessed with looking for the signs of the times. Because what Paul does here he's, is he tells us, he absolutely tells us when the end will come. The end will come when Christ has destroyed every rule and every power and every authority. And until that time, we are to proclaim Christ raised. But then we have to ask, right? What, what does this discussion really have to do with the resurrection? What does it have to do with our resurrection? And so Paul frames it and he tells us that the resurrection must always be understood. The end must always be understood within the context of the resurrection. And here what we see in verses 25 and 26 is we see him doing that. He says, for Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so we have, as we finish out this morning, what we have is, is this ultimate, really, climax of Jesus' reign. Not only the defeat of every enemy, but the ultimate defeat of death. And this defeat began with his resurrection. We just sang about it. But it will conclude in the final resurrection of those who are in him. So the resurrection of Christ not only ushers in the end, it establishes his rule and his reign. Christ will continue to rule, Paul tells us, until he has, su- he has subjected all of his enemies and brought to nothing all who reject God. And then to those who deny the resurrection, Paul's point here is, is pretty clear. If Christ has not been raised, then those in Christ are not raised. And so ultimately, if Christ has not been raised, then death continues to rule and reign. Not Christ. But Christ has been raised. And he does rule and reign. And he will defeat all those who are opposed to God, including death. Paul writes this, not Paul, excuse me, John writes this in his apocalypse. He says this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. Because Christ has been raised, death no longer rules. For a little while, he has continued to allow to exercise his power because we all still die. But his rule is over. His reign is over. So the end must always be understood in light of the resurrection. And over my years of of pastoring, which I realized last night as I was looking back over my notes, this is the fifth consecutive Easter that I've had the the privilege of, of proclaiming Christ raised to the church of God, right? But 
So five years really isn't all that long, but, but I was a youth pastor for a little bit too. But all my years of pastoring, so let's just say seven, right? I think I, I think I've pastored about seven years. So still not very long, right? Still not very long. But, but also my years of growing up in the Bible Belt in the very deep south, right? So in Mississippi. Uh, now that is my whole life, right? I'm sure like me, you've heard this on many occasions from folks, especially those that are obsessed with finding the signs of the times, right? You've heard this comment. I believe we're living in the end times. And used to, when I was a kid, even when I was a teenager, right after I came to faith in Christ, I used to get so irritated when people would say that. I'd roll my eyes at them like a know-it-all teenager because I was the worst of know-it-all teenagers. But then I realized as I got older and I started reading Scripture, they're absolutely right. We are living in the end times. The problem is, is that they're usually not thinking about the resurrection of Christ when they make that comment. They're thinking of a particular theological view on how the end will come, right? But they're absolutely right. We are living in the end times because Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of the harvest to come. And while we rightly love to celebrate Christmas or Epiphany or the baptism of the Lord or even Jesus' feast because the food is great, we now live in light of the resurrection and in the hope of the resurrection. We live under the reign and rule of Christ glorified and enthroned. The cross is done. It is finished, as Chris so beautifully helped us understand on Friday night. And because Christ has been raised, we are guaranteed that we too will be raised. And because Christ has been raised, the consummation of the kingdom of God is now always at hand. And because Christ has been raised, we can proclaim with the church throughout all the ages that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah and amen. Amen.